Welcome to the Six Hats podcast, where I, Dr. Shami, a lifestyle and nutritional medicine family doctor, will talk about how women strive to find balance each day by juggling their six roles, being a woman, mother, daughter, partner, business owner, and professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Six Hats podcast. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Michelle Woolhouse join us today. So she is an integrative and holistic GP for more than 22 years. She's an integrative medical clinic founder, podcaster, and also facilitates transformational healing immersions, which help people embrace their wholeness and find their personal sense of aliveness. Now, which I'm really excited about, she's also the author of the book, The Wonder Within, a heart-led playbook for the anxious, stressed, and burnt out. Now, I'm so excited about this podcast because it's going to help so many listeners, as according to the recent stats, two in five Australians suffer from a mental health condition and anxiety is the most common. So welcome, Michelle. Oh, thanks, Shami. It's great to be here. I'm really excited. Excellent. So I absolutely loved reading the book, Michelle, and I literally finished it in one evening. It was so engaging, full of pearls of wisdom. And I actually really love the exercises that you put at the end of the chapter or in, even in the chapter and all the stories. But one thing that really stood out right at the beginning, Michelle, was when I read that you suffered from anxiety from the age of nine. And I'd love to start from there because did you know that you were suffering from anxiety? What was anxiety like? as a child and was it just more upon reflection that you felt this has been going on for many years yeah i think it was it was more on reflection and in fact i probably didn't really realize that i was uh, i had the tendency to experience anxiety until i was probably in my late teens early 20s and and so it was only on reflection that i kind of understood that cyclical obsessive ruminating brain was actually really similar to a time when I was nine years of age. And at the time I was, you know, I was at a Catholic primary school and the local priest was very, very strict and traditional and old school. And we were learning the catechism. And I was quite a spiritual little kid, actually. And I had a real sense of kind of God essence, you know, not, I wasn't from a religious family. I just really loved the kind of reverence and sacredness of some of the rituals that were involved. and. I remember him telling us that there was a heaven and a hell. I was like, oh, okay, you know, like I, I knew about that essentially. But he also said that God was all knowing and all sensing. I thought, far out, you know, like, and then the worst thing that you could do was take the Lord's name in vain. And I thought, wow, I mean, you could kill someone and it was worse to take the Lord's name in vain. So as a child, I was thinking, far out, this is pretty heavy. I mean, this guy is all knowing and all powerful. And if you do something wrong, like swear at him, then you're going to hell. So that was enough to send me into panic. And I used to lie in bed, you know, thinking, you know, saying not very nice things to God, which created this whole sense of anxiety. And then it wasn't until in medical school, actually, when I had a repeat of that kind of experience and realized that, in fact, I had a tendency when I was a child yeah, and that was kind of the interesting aspect of learning about the cyclical nature of my particular style of doing anxiety and recognising that it was a threat to a sense of safety and then had to learn ways in which to create safety for myself and almost settle myself down, you know, resettle myself like I was a child. 
you know, as in like they're there, it's okay, it's you're not going to hell. And I had to reshape my neurology based on new ways and of of experiencing it. Wow. And you sort of share all of those tools in your book, which is amazing. And you sort of go on a journey. But can I just take you back to burnout? Um, oh, it's unbelievable. I, I was aware of this Facebook group of a thousand female GPs in Australia who are burnt out. And for me, that was pretty shocking because I've been doing it for over 20 years as well. And these GPs may have just been doing it for two to three years. So I go, what's happening in the system? Like what's gone wrong? And because all of these are amazing GPs that are compassionate and people need them, the public needs them. So I would love to know more about your burnout journey. Did you know that you were stressed? Did you know that you were reaching burnout? Well, I think there's sort of two ways to answer that. I mean, yes, I did. You know, I, I knew I was getting cynical and I knew that I was getting, my empathy was kind of lessening. And I had a lot on my plate, you know, sustaining a marriage. I had two children, you know, I had a business and I had, you know, thousands of patients and add that to, you know, your own personal self-care. And I was, you know, also faculty member of, you know, a college and trying to do a lot of the other things that I'm really passionate about, such as education and podcasting, etc. And I'm one of those people that, you know, loves to say yes to things. It's not like a, it's not an arduous thing to say yes to something. I just, I just sort of uber passionate and just say yes to everything because I really get excited. And so, yes, I did know that I was heading towards burnout but at the same time burnout is a really interesting place to be it's kind of like a past tense so there is inherent in it and a way that you can only actually see it from the past you know looking back it's you're like a match you've sort of you know you're a black match you can't be relit again and I knew that it was different to stress and anxiety and so yes I was stressed and I wasn't actually very anxious and so it does have a different quality. There is a different quality to burnout than there is to actual stress and to anxiety. And I think understanding and navigating the differences can actually be really powerful because I think the therapy is quite different and the needs are quite different depending upon where you're at on that particular spectrum. So it was a hindsight aspect, but in the book, I also explain there's a beautiful TED talk from a, an American-based neurologist who is so well-versed on the anatomy of the brain that as she watched herself have a stroke, she could actually watch the parts of the brain become damaged. And so as much as she was fearful and, and active at trying to seek help, she was also fascinated by the process. And I guess in many ways, because I have such a significant, I guess, personal understanding, but also professional understanding of, of anxiety, stress and burnout, I was actually fascinated to watch the differences and how it was playing out in my life. And I think, you know, burnout is actually, it's very much a heart-based experience. It's very much a soul-based experience. It's like it, the light inside you is dim. And whereas anxiety is much, it has a much stronger sort of sense of anxiety and activity activity and panic and repetitive nature to it and so I think there's these kind of I mean and everybody experiences I mean they do cross over and they, they merge a little bit but for me I think that you know in medicine there's there's a sense of like a dimness of the light that is kind of almost pathognomonic of the burnout experience. How would you describe it up to the point where people can understand actually doing what I'm going through burnout? Because often, you know, when you're doing long hours, it, you may be in corporate world, it's 
actually you know embraced and you know that kind of success is actually given a badge of honor so it's actually really hard to sort of say actually this is actually having a negative impact on me and this could be burnout how would you define it the world health organization defines it by three different factors so one is a, a feeling of exhaustion you know physical fatigue or mental fatigue and so i'm a person that has a, a very good level of energy physically so I didn't get any real physical fatigue, but I certainly got a mental fatigue. I really had to drag myself out of bed. So fatigue was something really distinctive for me, but it wasn't a physical one. So, But people would get physical fatigue from burnout for sure. The second thing is a sense of cynicism and negativity. So there was like a, a negativity about things in general. So whether it was negativity about, you know, staffing issues or that things weren't going to get better or there was kind of a grey cloud over that. And I mean, I was, I'm definitely a deluded optimist by nature. Like I'm an optimistic person. So I knew that there was something distinctively wrong there with my cynicism and sarcasm and things that was quite distinctive and not really who I am as a, a personality. And the third thing is lack of productivity. So, you know, aspects of not feeling productive enough or alternatively, you know, making mistakes you know, that you wouldn't normally make are kind of the three common aspects of burnout. But I think in medicine in particular, there is an element of, as I was saying before, of, of a sense of, of sadness and grief that kind of accompanies burnout as well. I mean, being in a, a health-orientated field where, you know, part of our job is to care and when you're not able to really care, that actually adds a layer, an extra layer of burden on you because you kind of know that you sign up to care as well. And so there's a conflict, a kind of internal sort of almost spiritual conflict that happens inside you, particularly when you're trying to maintain a level of professionalism in a profession that is designed to care. And I think that is particular for burnout within medicine or burnout within health per se absolutely absolutely and i love in your book that you go through various techniques but i love it the way you take it through stories i really want to you want you to share the story which one of my favorites was the in the 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 title of patience and how missionaries in africa were actually you know being taught patience if you could share that story i think it's so awesome it's written about a hundred years ago by a woman who would commonly write stories from africa she lived in africa and there was a story of some missionaries that were crossing a particularly difficult part of Africa and they needed some African trackers to help them get to this particular city or town by a particular day. And so they had they allowed five days for this arduous journey and they knew that they were going to push the limits to get there at this particular time. So they had about four African trackers that were helping them navigate this journey and they were pushing them very hard. And on about the third day, the trackers, you know, were meant to be packing up and to take them, you know, almost towards sort of the end of the journey. And the lead tracker who had very, you know, limited language said to them, we can't go, we can't move today. And the person running the expedition was like, well, why not? We have a time limit. We have to, we said we'd be there five o'clock on Saturday. We have to move. Like, let's go, come on. And he said, well, we can't because we've moved too fast over the ground and we have to wait for our spirits to catch up. And for me, when I read that story, I kind of got chills to the sense that it felt like life was so racing that it was like my spirit was trying to stop me from going any further. And I felt like I had that real sense. And patience was such an interesting 
learning lesson for me because I remember learning about it, you know, when I was way younger and it was like one of the seven virtues or whatever. And I thought, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what on earth has patience got to do with a virtue? But through this whole experience of burnout, I actually really understood the value of patience and the value of working alongside the rhythm of life. And it's not just the rhythm of your life, it's the rhythm of life. It has a rhythm that needs to kind of be danced alongside with. You know, you can't, it's like being on the dance floor and somebody's trying to manipulate your moves. You know, it's like, oh, you don't, no one ever likes to dance with someone that's kind of pushing and pulling them. You want to dance to your, the rhythm and the beat of the song, you know, and that's a little bit like life. And it's certainly one of the greatest lessons that I've taken from, you know, this recent challenging life experience that I that I had. Such a beautiful analogy, the dance. We forget to just dance to our own. I love that. I think a lot of healthcare professionals can really learn from that. And I just feel like we've gone into this rat race of, right, you've got to achieve this by a certain age and you've got to do all of this study by a certain time. Why? Why are we doing that to ourselves? And that patience was just such a great reminder just go to your timeline your journey because often I think people are very you know we compare ourselves to each other we do yeah (laughs) and and that can just drive us into different paths that we didn't really want and sort of leading on to that it's sort of a great reminder that we don't all have to work in a certain way and when I see a lot of you know GPs getting burnt out really long hours short time frames to see patients And like exactly what you said, not really doing a lot of self-care for themselves. So you mentioned this great time when you were in Vanuatu and it just made me smile because, oh, just imagine my work day if I just went to work and then went to the beach in the afternoon and then did more work and how like in Australia we're attuned to, right, let's start early, let's finish the patients, let's go home. And it's bang, 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 bang all the time. So what was it like when you were in Vanuatu? I think there was just so much too working in in such a kind of island slash idyllic kind of situation. I mean, for one, it was incredibly interesting medicine, but two, you know, working to the rhythm of a different culture's way of life is extraordinary because it almost unravels your, you know, your patterns and neurology. I mean, they closed after lunch, you know, wards closed and it would, you know, families would come in and when the families came in, there was like 24 family members, so there was no point doing a ward round. So we used to catch a little ferry across to this idyllic beach and lie on there and the mangoes would wash up on the beach through the tides. So we'd just have a cup. <laughs> and then we'd come back. And But I think the other thing about working in that particular culture, which was just so rewarding, which is so different to kind of the medicine that we practice in kind of cities and, and country and the cities per se, is that the level of reverence that they have for the carer the doctor or the nurse or the practitioner was extraordinary and I think that was part of it it was a hugely healing aspect was for the reverence but and interestingly I saw it India as well so people would line up to the Ayurvedic doctor you know first thing in the morning to receive their daily dose of herbs and the reverence that they experienced from receiving the herbs was almost otherworldly in the sense that it wasn't just a reverence for the person. So we have an altered kind of relationship to reverence in our culture. It's like it's kind of egoistic or arrogant or all of these kind of complex, you know, sort of really, I guess, immature ways of looking at reverence. Whereas 
because in the traditional law or more Indigenous cultures, reverence is actually a reverence to nature and a reverence to the knowledge that comes through centuries, through generations, through the trees, through the plants, through the soils. And I think that is really helpful, you know, because as doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals, there is a sense of that you do dedicate you know, a huge part of your life to be in service with others. And the reverence is a very beautiful way to reciprocate the compassion back to the carer so that the carer can restore themselves so that they can keep caring for the next person. And I feel like the last 10, 15 years of serving in medicine, that's actually really changed. And as a community, I don't think we've really recognised that. And the burnout rates in, you know, so the current burnout rates, 67% of GPs are either, you know, moderately or severely burnt out. 76% of nurses are burnt out. One in three New Zealand psychiatrists are, are thinking of leaving the profession. And it's a huge issue for the community because it just is. And so we really need to look at the way that we care for each other and not only just caring for ourselves, but caring for each other. So because as we care for each other, we're in fact caring for ourselves. Absolutely. And what a great reminder. What a great reminder. And those stats are shocking. They're absolutely shocking. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it takes years and years of training to get into that, to master that level of care. It's such a shame that they are leaving because it's going to take years to have more psychiatrists or have more doctors. No, absolutely. On, on a separate note, I loved in the chapter Albert Einstein, and this was just such a relief to hear it. You mentioned how we are wired to pick up threats more easily than positive feelings, and it's part of our survival mechanism. And I love that you mentioned it because it was like, okay, let's just acknowledge what we're just attuned to. Because often we're just sort of like battling against that. We go, why are we waking up with these negative thoughts why is it just ruminating why can't we sleep because of these ruminating thoughts just how to solve a problem and i love the fact that you mentioned it. we're just wired that way it's how we work i mean i think part of the book is i wanted to really kind of almost bring it back to basics for people to actually understand their biology and their neurology so we you know combine it to call that neurobiology and physiology which is how the you know the cells kind of talk to each other and I think it's really important to kind of normalize that for people because I really think you know anxiety stress and burnout are really not you know that they you experience the symptoms via the mental health you know aspects of our lives but in fact, they're not really, they're not a disease process as such. They're just a normal extension of how we actually operate. And, you know, this is how we evolved. So by learning how the brain and the whole body works in a complete form allows us then to properly navigate the solutions that are required for stress, anxiety, and burnout. So for example, you know, often I felt too when I experienced anxiety in my early career days is one of the greatest lessons I learned was to stop fighting myself, you know, to stop fighting the fact that I had anxiety, you know, that I was embarrassed or that, you know, I also learned stress increased your risk of, you know, um, chronic diseases. And, you know, I had a lot of health anxiety because, you know, being in medicine and having these diseases presented, you know, in this disempowering, like, oh my God, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And no emphasis really on your own empowerment was quite daunting for me and amplified things. And so one of the things that was really powerful was to stop fighting the fact that I had anxiety and accepting that, but also befriending it and seeing it as a warning sign for me to listen a little bit more closely to myself and to my life and to the stories of my life and see what was happening. And 
in the book I also talk about this time that I was referred to a psychiatrist and that was humiliating and probably a little extreme from the GP I think in hindsight but nevertheless it was part of the story so I'm grateful and but going to see this psychiatrist who was this he had one of those huge desks I think the desk was about the size of half a tennis court and I was sort of sitting on the other side of the room so far away from this tiny guy with a bow tie and tiny beady glasses and he was asking me about my mother and my father and I was like oh my god it's got nothing to do with and so then when he told me, you know, I think this is just anxiety and you're not going to die from it. And there you go, never saw him again. And I think that was the greatest kind of gift, actually, because it was almost like, okay, well, it was a throwaway line for him, but it was actually a lifeline for me because I was like, oh, okay, if that's just what it is, then I can deal with that, you know. And from that moment on, I kind of, it was like as if I carried along with me rather than um, shamed myself for having it and uh, I started to learn to respect it and then and sit with the discomfort that I was experiencing so that I could so that my body could come back into safety and there's a whole raft of different exercises that can be done in that way that helps a person actually reclaim the safety inside themselves and also the trust inside themselves as well fantastic I think you share quite a few of the exercises in your book as well so you know that's awesome which kind of leads me beautifully to talk about self-compassion oh my god when I learned about self-compassion I literally use it as a drug of just being really <laughs> kind to ourselves you know especially in the medical world and while you're sort of going into med school you're in med school there's a lot of comparison there's a lot of you cannot get it wrong and that huge amount of fear and also you know senior doctors would be actually quite scary to be honest and so you just grow up with it terrifying <laughs> I know I was like how did we do that and you just go with the fear of doing things incorrectly and it could be something really simple it could be admin or something didn't quite right go right in the clinic and which was out of our control and now I just use really kind words to myself knowing that this will flow but just being really kind and but it's really interesting when I talk to patients about showing kindness to themselves they actually ask that question what do you mean what is self-compassion so i'd love for you to share what exactly is self-compassion well self-compassion you know i often say to people it's like putting yourself into the soup you know so for example you don't, you know you can't have a soup without onion so you're like the onion you know <laughs> you're the onion that you put into soup unless you've got fructose yeah. but, <laughs> yes. but i think self-compassion is a way of actually just a shared humanity so it's actually really acknowledging our humanness and our vulnerability and for that really quite frightening but one thing that I realized a couple of years ago is that I often used to feel very, very vulnerable when people showed me kindness and it was quite a game changer in the sense of like you know because I, I wanted to be okay with everything I didn't want well you know I was kind of a hyper independent person who didn't want help because that would be a reflection of a sense of failure or a sense of vulnerability. And that felt really uncomfortable for me to have that. But what I learned over the years is that that I, you know, I am human. And some people are more naturally kind of able to ask for help in a way. But for me, that was a real sense of feeling very weak. And that was really unhelpful. But it was a lovely sort of symbol to see that. And so when I tried on self-compassion in the book, I sort of talk about it. It is a very sacred experience and it's really something that really can't be shared and it's very unique to you and how you play around in the world of self-compassion is really very personal 
And so one of the things that I did was that I would look at myself in the mirror each day and gently put my hands, you know, on my face and I would look at myself and I would tell myself that I love myself. And I can tell you, Shami, I just felt like the biggest goon for so long and it would feel, I remember the first day and I felt really embarrassed, really humiliated, really, I just wanted to shrink and I thought it was interesting I, you know, I had enough I guess, courage to persist and do it the next day. And really, it doesn't take that long. Within about seven to 10 days, it actually started to feel very nice to be able to do that for myself. And then I started to kind of play around with more challenging, difficult emotions. Like, so for me, humiliation was a big one. So somewhere, I don't know why, but humiliation was a big one and and often would feel humiliated for various different kind of reasons. That was kind of my fallback. And so that's when I would trigger into self-compassion through that. And, you know, over the years, that has definitely changed. I don't necessarily have that sense. Who knows? I mean, we never know where some of these kind of the wrestling of our emotions come from. And as much as it's great to explore those things sometimes and pinpoint them, sometimes they just, we can't explain them. And it's great then to just keep going with the techniques in a way and staying with that discomfort and learning through that because you honestly don't know what what magic comes through just persisting and turning up for yourself. So true, so true. Now, Michelle, before we leave you today, I'd love for you to share about your new venture, which is hosting retreats both in Australia and Bali. Tell us more. Super, super excited. So it's called Enliven Retreats. And all the information, we've got four different curated retreats. So the reason that we started running that, and we, I have a co-facilitator called Carolyn Hales, who I've worked with for a long period of time. We come together with very different skill sets, which is kind of the magic, really. So I come, you know, with, I guess, the more traditional and scientifically, you know, backed background. And she comes from a much more energetic and mentoring and counseling background. So we come together, almost speak with different words, the exact same language. And that's very helpful for people to be held in that space with two very different facilitators because you can take different things from as you need them. And so, yeah, they range from, you know, supporting women to help them, you know, sit with difficult emotions to understand, you know, elements of process so that they can learn to self-regulate and learn to, I guess, tune into themselves a whole lot more. We do quite a lot of vision and dream work and empowerment work and boundaries and learning all these really tricky things in an experiential way is critical for taking it from sort of, I guess, you know, an intellectual sort of know-how into an actual heart-based right of this experience. And so they're incredibly powerful. I've worked a lot with some patients of mine that I've known for a long period of time, and I've had the benefit of actually seeing them pre and post retreat. There's definitely incredible, almost non-reversible aspects, you know, and that's what has made me really inspired to keep doing them. And so they are amazing. Amazing. So who's 
or who's the who needs these retreats? Yeah, so I mean, we've designed them for women because they, for one, we believe in the journey of the woman, and we're, we're two women as well. And I think women need to learn to turn up for women and to support that kind of feminine journey through our various cultures. And they're really for women who are really looking for new perspectives and new ways to live their life. So we go, we have one called Courageously Me, which is really about activating courage and really stepping into your life. And another one called Wise Radiant Me, which is really about uh, creating that vision and really looking at the things that not hold you back, but more actually like let go of some of the baggage that we tend to collect along the way and so that we can achieve, you know, the holistic aspect of what we are aiming for. And then awakening wisdom is a lot about reverence and the sacredness. And so that aspect of our lives is, I can think, underrepresented, Jamie, I would say, you know, as we kind of are very mechanicalistic and very reductionistic and linear within our culture and sort of regaining a little bit more of the sacredness to life. And then birdsong is our foundational retreat. So it's some really basic skill-based techniques to really help anchor people in the process so that they can really then have all of the resources for which to then step in to a whole raft of different opportunities that might come their way. Amazing. I'm definitely going to check out the website and we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Absolutely. So before we leave you, Michelle, how do you look after yourself? Because I know you're actually doing a lot at the moment. So how do you sort of set the boundaries? How do you continue with self-care? Mm, uh, thanks for asking. Um, well, so I think the basic foundations of my healthcare is, you know, lifestyle medicine. So, you know, sleeping well, eating well, exercising and mindfulness-based activities are kind of the cornerstone. But I think since since this last burnout and through, you know, being supported through a mentoring sort of process, but also understanding process, understanding how I can hold myself and learn from my life rather than being wrapped up within the drama is actually being very critical for my self-care so that I can, it's almost like I have, it's like a, what do they call it? Meta awareness, you know, it's the awareness of being aware. And so it's like I have a second head on my shoulder, you know, so I witness myself, I watch myself carefully. And it's that watching and that witnessing is done through an essence of compassion and and value, so self-worth. And that has been a profound shift in my self-care. And the other beautiful thing about that is I feel that it's much more sustainable. It's not an exercise program that, you know, you can tweak your back and you let it go it's like sometimes these foundational skills you can't unlearn them that's the beauty of them you know you can't they're, they're not they're particularly unique to me you know and so every one of your listeners and yourself will have your own nuanced subtle chamois way of doing things or you know Kate's way of doing things and I have I think you know through the beautiful thing about being a doctor is that I get to have these patients mirroring me back all the time so accelerated learning there and and then yeah just I guess gathering the wisdom and really owning the wisdom that is innate in me which is part of the reason why I wrote, wrote the wonder within you know to really encourage people to access their own internal wisdom and yeah that's probably how I do it 
Amazing. So <laughs> where can people find you, Michelle? So I have a website called theholisticgp.com.au and Enliven Retreats is enliven, E-N-L-I-V-E-N-retreats.com.au and on Instagram, still fuddling my way through that and LinkedIn and yeah, people are welcome to connect with me through that. And yeah, if they're interested in retreats, just drop us a line and we'll let you know which ones are coming up. So we've got one coming up in April in the Yarra Valley and our Bali one in August. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm sure people have really enjoyed this podcast. So many, so many insights. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jamie. Anytime. Lovely to talk to you. Remember that this is general advice only. Please see your healthcare professional for more information. So what's your take home message today? Remember it's all about progress and not perfection. And are you suffering from stress? Visit Usawa Learning Hub on usawa.com.au and sign up for the six week challenge on how to reduce stress today. Enjoy the journey.